Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you this week. Last week, my family and I were away on vacation. We were with you in spirit, praying with you. I'm thankful to uh, Brother Dave Mansfield putting the messages up right away because at 1 o'clock we were able to listen to the messages and um, hear Brother Santiago and Brother Randy Harms in the evening. So I'm appreciative for the Word of God going forth and to uh, men who are willing to step in and to come behind this pulpit and deliver God's message. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, from the beginning of the, of the year, we've been talking about the responsibility of us as believers, how we have been called to walk in light, to live as believers, to make our calling known, to demonstrate to the world that we indeed have been saved by the grace of God, and that we're making it a point to let others know, not that we're saved, but that they can be saved. So we've been looking at what our walk as believers should look like, that we should be beacons of light, that we should be instruments of God's grace and glory to the world. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a few verses here from Ephesians chapter 5 in a sermon that I've titled, Behaving Wisely. Behaving Wisely. The Bible has much to say about not being foolish but behaving wisely. In fact, much of the book of Proverbs, if you've ever read through that, it contrasts the fool and the wise person. In no way has living foolishly ever proven to be beneficial. And yet, we need these constant reminders not to live foolishly. We need constant reminders to behave wisely. The dictionary defines the word fool as a person who acts unwisely or, or imprudently or a silly person. Now, we might use the word in many different contexts to describe a whole host of different people, but the Bible defines the word fool in Psalm 14 and verse number 1 this way. The Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt they have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. In other words, the Bible describes the foolish person as the one who lives apart from God, either in belief or in their actions. The biggest fool is the person who lives in opposition to God, both in thought and action. Since every single person is born separated from God in our hearts, and is born at really a natural enemy of God in our actions, then we are born spiritually foolish. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 3, it tells us just how bad it was. It says in Ephesians 2 verse 3, it says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. What that's saying is that every single one of us, regardless of where you are today, where you started, you were all born in sin, and then we added our own personal sin and our own personal guilt on top of all of that and really further solidified our position with God, as it says there in Ephesians 2 verse 3, as children of his wrath. We deserve nothing but eternal condemnation, and we manifested that in our own personal sin, how we were born in sin and just added to that every single day. Now, 
Anyone that has children know that this is true. If you can remember to what you were like as a child, you know this is true. Before you think that you were God's gift to humanity and you were the first person who never sinned and the first, first person who never did any wrong apart from Christ, every one of us are guilty. If you can think back to your own childhood when your parents told you not to do something and you immediately wanted to do something that they told you not to do, there was an inclination in you that was leaning to do what your parents told you not to do. As a parent, you see this with your children. You tell them not to do something, and before you know it, they are sneakily trying to go and do exactly what you told them not to do. Every one of us are born with a sin nature, and that sin nature is a bend in us that pulls us away from God and wants to rebel against that authority. Every one of us start this way. We deserved only God's eternal judgment because we were fools both spiritually and naturally. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 21 and 22, it describes how bad it can get for the foolish person. It says, Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, the Bible says, they became fools. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see the, the foolish and the wise person contrasted as they are referred to as the natural man, who is the, the foolish person, and the spiritual man, who is the wise person. And listen to what it says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, The natural man, the fool, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So do you see what happens here? After continuing to reject God's way of living, God's pattern for success in your life, the fool convinces himself that God's way is actually foolishness. He thinks his own personal way is actually the right way and the wise way to be living while rejecting God's way and eventually God's way becomes foolishness. His way of foolishness becomes actually wisdom to himself. So it's a complete flip that happens here. The things of the Spirit of God become foolishness, not to God, though, but to the fool, because everything about God is backwards from how the fool would do things. So the fool ends up thinking that his foolishness is wisdom and true wisdom is foolishness. Now, let's take a look at what the Bible says here in, or in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 through 17. Let's see what this has to say on this matter. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I want you to notice, first of all, there's a, a battle here between spiritual foolishness and true wisdom. Spiritual foolishness and true wisdom. Now, you may seem like this doesn't make sense. Spiritual foolishness, is there such a thing? How can there be such a thing as spiritual foolishness? Well, if you're a fool, you're not spiritual, are you? That would be correct. However, every single person lives with a God, a lowercase g God, of some sort that he worships. Back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 23, we're told what this looks like. It says, And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Basically, what we're told is that people make idols out of anything and everything. 
whether we realize it or not, we make idols out of all sorts of different things. And these idols can become gods to us if we're not careful. I'm going to ask you a question, and I know the answer to this, so don't bother trying to lie to me. But how many of you have a cell phone? Right? Everyone's got a cell phone today. That's a lie. How many of you carry your cell phone just about everywhere you go? Right? Some of you are lying. Some of you are telling the truth this morning. How many of you have it with you right now? And I know there's one because I just heard it go off earlier. How many of you have it with you right now? All right, make sure that's silenced right now because I will take it away. No. But it used to be that phones were only good for calling people. But now we've made phones our entire life, haven't we? They're glued to our hip, in our pocket, everywhere we go because it's part of who we are now. Now we rarely use our phones for what the original purpose was. How many of you use your phone more to do something else other than to call people? Probably the majority of us, right? Most of our communication through our telephones isn't done through speaking. We're sending text messages, we're sending emails, Facebook messages, tweets, and probably a hundred different other outlets that I'm not aware of. The point is that we become so attached to our phones that if we ever lose them, we frantically search through our house and backtrack all of our steps to try and find where it is that we've left it. And when we do find it, we almost feel like the woman who searched her house looking for the one gold coin that she lost. And when she found it, she's calling her friends and family, celebrating the fact that she's finally found herself. This is how attached we get to it, that it's part of us that's been missing and we can't function in life without it. We've made idols out of cell phones. We've made idols out of stuff, whether it's a cell phone, whether it's a television, whether it's money or food or any number of things, we've made idols out of all these things. This is how fools live. In Proverbs 12, 15, the Bible says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we do that which is right in our own eyes and in our own heart, we always end up miserable. The more we continue in foolishness, the more we start believing that wrong is right and right is wrong. All the way to the point that we're told in, in Proverbs 14, verse number 9, that says that fools make a mock at sin. See, it can get so bad that we are actually believing that, that wrong is right and right is wrong. And then not just staying there, but going so far as to actually making a mock at sin. We see the sin in our lives and we're actually laughing at it as if it's not a big deal or if it's not sin at all. So not only does a foolish person not think that sin is bad, he doesn't even recognize sin the longer he continues in his foolish way. The fool sets himself as his own authority or as his own God. And he views himself and all that he's doing as spiritually self-sufficient. The fool will justify his behavior because He's made his own rules. He's made his own way of life. And in doing so, he doesn't view sin as sin. How can you when you've just flip-flopped everything that God has said about everything? He refuses to acknowledge the consequences of sin because sin is no longer sin anymore. So it must not be bad. 
What makes matters worse is that the fool doesn't keep his way of thinking to himself, but he spreads this foolishness and propagates it. The more the foolish person is convinced of the wisdom of his folly, and it seems so backwards to even say that, but he convinces himself that he's actually wise in living for himself and following his own path of foolishness, and the more he's convinced of this, he will spread and tell others about it. It is such an enticing way of life because the fool encourages people to do that which is right in their own eyes. Now, doesn't that sound great? Who wouldn't want to do what's right in their own eyes, right? I mean, there, there reaches a point where some of us feel like we're smarter than God or smarter than the Bible, and we think, well, we should be able to figure things out by this point. You know, we've lived for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. We've learned quite a few things in that time frame. So why shouldn't we be smart enough to just, you know, let God just take a break, sit on the sidelines for a while, and we can take things from here? And the more a fool does that, the more he's going to convince himself that the foolish way of living is actually better, better, the better way of living. Even when we should know better, there are plenty of times when we think we know what is right when we really have no clue. We think higher of ourselves than what we should, and as a result, we get ourselves into messy situations all because we didn't stop to consider if we're acting on selfish impulses or on ones that are actually seeking to honor and glorify God. Without even thinking about it, we're showing those around us that we don't need God at all in our lives because we're smart enough to figure these things out on our own. Now, this type of behavior should be expected from those that are unsaved. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, again, talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man doesn't know any better. It would be like expecting a blind person to all of a sudden see. He's not going to be able to see, so we expect him to kind of stumble his way through life. And I'm not making fun of blind people, but I'm just saying there's an expectation about blind people that they just can't see. So it, it shouldn't be surprising to us when they can't see. It should be expected of the unsaved to walk foolishly, to live foolishly, because they just don't know any better. Spiritual matters can only be spiritually discerned. We don't get upset with people for not knowing things, for a blind man not seeing and a deaf man not hearing. Why should we expect the unsaved person to be able to figure everything out on his own? He's not going to. The fool lives like a fool because he believes that he's right. He believes in the knowledge and the information that he's gained over his lifetime that he's actually doing what is good and what is acceptable. The mouth of fools poureth out foolishness because that is everything that they know. We may all have been fools at one point. But if you've been saved by the grace of God, there is a new life that you're called to live. And this is what Ephesians is all about. No longer is it acceptable for us to, to live in the foolish life or to even consider making a mock at sin. No longer is it acceptable for us to influence others to live in the same foolish lifestyle, to do whatever they view as right in their own eyes and in their own heart. In Proverbs 1, verses 29 to 32, it tells us of the foolish. It says, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. That old lifestyle was abandoned for a reason if you're saved. And it needs to be left in the past. It never worked out for you in the past. It never actually did anything to earn your salvation. So why would, you why would you abandon it and then try to go back to it? It needs to be left where it is in the past. As much as it offered temporary pleasures and satisfactions, no good ever came from it. The only thing that it 
did bring you is misery and pain. And yet it is hard, so hard for us to let go of all of the past, isn't it? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure that all of us still struggle. Even if you're saved and you've been saved for like 50 years, all of us still struggle with relics from that old life and that old man and that old nature that we wish would never show their ugly head again. I'm sure there are habits that we wish would no longer be tempting to us. Practices that we wish would no longer be viewed as pleasant. And speech that we wish would no longer find its way out of our mouths. It is a struggle for sure. You don't just flip a switch and your life changes like that from being a complete fool to completely wise. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a process to changing from foolishness to behaving wisely. The fool, it says in Proverbs 1, hates knowledge, but the wise will increase in knowledge. The knowledge that the fool hates is not practical knowledge. The fool loves practical knowledge, but what he hates is godly knowledge. The fool loves practical knowledge. He loves uh, factual knowledge. In fact, the foolish person prides himself on how much he knows. He prides himself on how much he knows because he, he's convinced that in the gathering of knowledge and information is wisdom. Someone has estimated that if all of man's accumulated knowledge from the beginning of recorded history to the year 1845 were represented in one inch, if all of it, from the very beginning of time to the year 1845, if all of the accumulated wealth of knowledge of man is measured and it's measured in one inch, what we've learned from 1845 to 1945, so 100 years, would amount to three inches. That's a significant jump, isn't it? From the beginning of recorded history to 1845, the wealth and the accumulated information that man has learned is about an inch. And from the next 100 years, 1845 to 1945, three inches. But what we've learned since 1945 to today would amount to the height of the Washington Monument. That's a significant leap, isn't it? From one inch from one inch to three inches to I haven't actually measured how tall the Washington Monument is, but it's a fraction over three inches. It's huge. Studies have shown that nanotechnology has been doubling every two years and clinical knowledge has been doubling every 18 months. But on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. Now, with all of this gathering of information, few people would argue that all the advancements in science and technology and medicine have been paralleled by a corresponding leap in common sense, not to mention spiritual and moral wisdom. If anything, with the more that we've learned, the more we've decreased morally and spiritually. The knowledge we have today is, is more superficial knowledge than anything else. Basically encouraging us that we need God less. We figured out so much about this world and about all the resources that God has given us only to conclude that we need God less and less is basically what we've come to. At the end of the day, we have a world full of knowledgeable fools. 2 Timothy 3.7 describes them this way. He's, the Apostle Paul says, They are ever learning 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ever learning, filling their head with information, information that God has provided, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I was witnessing to a man once who was very knowledgeable and he was very quick to let me know how knowledgeable he was. Every time I mentioned God, he was quick to tell me that, that God wasn't real. I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere with him unless I could get him to admit that there was something he didn't know because he was clearly smarter than me and smarter than any other person he'd ever been around. So I needed to get him to admit that there was actually something that he didn't know in order for me to actually make any sort of headway with him. So I just flat out asked him. I said, with all of the information out in the world and in an entire universe, I said, would you say, with all of your wealth of knowledge, that you know at least 50% of all the knowledge and information out there? And that was being modest, right? I mean, I'm kind of patting this guy's ego here. I'm not going to say 100% because who would say that? But 50% is incredible. I mean, if, if there was a single person that knew 50% of all the information out there, he'd be the smartest person alive. And it was not this person that was standing before me. So I asked him, I said, with all the information out in the universe around us, would it be possible that you know at least 50% of everything out there? And so he thought for a minute, and he said, yes. <laughs> Which, again, if that were true, he'd be the smartest person on the planet. And I assure you he was not because he fell right into my trap. So I responded by saying, all right. So you know 50% of everything out there. But that leaves 50% of something that you don't know. So I said, in the 50% of what you don't know, could it be possible that God may exist in that 50%? Because you believe in the 50% that you know, and you've already told me you there's 50% you don't know, so you can't go back and change that. But you know 50% of everything. And in that 50% of what you know, you are convinced that God doesn't exist. Could God exist in the other 50% that you don't know? I, I, he's trapped, right? I mean, how can you deny that? How can you reject that there's a possibility? I didn't even say, are you convinced? I said, is there a possibility that God can exist in the other 50%? He stopped for a moment and he said, no, it's not possible that God exists. Proverbs 10.21 says, fools die for want of wisdom. Even though people can accumulate vast amounts of information and knowledge, they can be smarter and more foolish at the same time. Learning is good, but in many cases, increasing knowledge leads many people to also increase in self-reliance and just this high self-image of themselves, viewing that they don't need God more and more. Increasing knowledge has led many people to believe that they're smarter than the Bible and that there is nothing new that God can ever teach them. Foolish people suffer because they won't submit to God. They've accumulated such large amounts of knowledge apart from God, but lack spiritual understanding, leading them to hate sin and salvation. They don't think they need it. They think they're smart enough without it. The Bible tells us that wisdom and knowledge must first begin with the fear of the Lord. Listen to what we're told in Proverbs 1, verse 7. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is where it begins, and this is where it continues. Very simply, the way to wisdom is the way of God. You want to get smart? Go to God. Be in His Word. 
The only power that can overcome man's foolishness is the grace of God, believing on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Turning from foolishness to wisdom is turning from yourself to God. It is acknowledging that you're not smart enough, that you're not capable enough, that you're not strong enough, but praise the Lord, you have someone who is smart enough, who is capable enough, who is strong enough, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord for that. You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to know enough. You just have to know that you're a sinner and that you have a Savior who has died on the cross for your sins. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And praise the Lord that a four-year-old can do it. Praise the Lord that a 94-year-old can do it. Turning from foolishness to wisdom is turning from yourself to God. In 2 Timothy 3.15, the Bible states, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We live in a world that is trying to pull our attention and our focus away from Christ. In Colossians 2.8, it tells us, it says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The world wants us to play the, the philosophical game, that increases learning but never comes to the knowledge of the truth. Because unlike hypothesis and speculation, truth requires recognition, acceptance, and change on our part. Unlike the wisdom of the world, the Bible is centered on recognizing and obeying God. When a person is saved, the Bible says that he has made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this leads him to walk in a different way. And the book of Ephesians is all about showing us what that new way of walking looks like. Here's the old way, the Bible says. Here's what it used to look like. It never worked out that way. But fortunately, God has set the formula as to what the view and the pathway of success actually looks like. And here it is, he says. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. When a person is saved, he has made this new creation in Christ. Notice again, verse 15, again it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise. He calls attention to what it used to be and what it needs to be. He's taking believers who know better, who have no business walking as fools in the knowledge of the world when they're believers, when they're capable of walking in wisdom and the knowledge of Christ. And he's pleading for them to see how detrimental it was for them in the past and how necessary it is for them now as believers, as new creations in Christ, to live the new way, the spirit-filled life. See then, he says, that you walk circumspectly. There is a night and day difference between walking in foolishness and walking in wisdom. And believers need to act the part. We need to behave wisely. So we see kind of the difference between foolish way of living and the wise way of living. But notice, secondly, the believer's life principles. The believer's life principles. Look again at verse number 15. It says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. It starts off by saying two words, see then. Some of you were saved later in life. Some of you experienced the life of foolishness to know you never want to go back. Even if you could, you experienced that life of foolishness enough, living apart from Christ, that you know 
what exactly you were saved from, and you're so thankful that God saved you from that, and you never have a desire to even entertain the thought of going back. I've never met a single person who was saved and regretted ever coming to Christ. Never met a single person who was saved and thought, you know what? I think I had it better before. I think my life was actually on a better trajectory before Christ saved me, and this has been the worst decision of my life. I've never heard those words ever spoken by any single person who truly trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. No one looks upon their salvation and thinks that they were better off before they were saved as opposed to after. Some of you were saved early in life and didn't experience the, the fullness of the life of foolishness. And you know what? That's a good thing. Because you're not missing anything. This is why we're told in verse 15, again, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. It was never to our benefit to behave as fools, so why would we bother behaving foolishly today? Last week we were on vacation, and um, we were swimming in a pool, and I was trying to teach the kids how to play a game called Marco Polo. Any of you ever heard of the game or played the game Marco Polo? Some of you? Okay. For, for those that don't know the game, you're all in the pool and there's one person who is it. They close their eyes and they have to call out Marco and everyone else is in the pool that has their eyes open. They're trying to swim away from this person and they have to respond by saying polo. So every time the person says Marco, he says, they, everyone else says polo and the person needs to, with their eyes closed, chase and catch everyone else by hearing their voice trying to figure out where they are. Well, part of this game, you're allowed to get out of the pool. But if the person who is with his eyes closed calling out Marco senses that someone is out of the pool, he can yell, fish out of water. And if you're ever caught out of the pool when he says this, then you're automatically out of the game. Some of us are behaving like fish out of water. Where we're living like fools rather than behaving wisely. We're going against our new nature as believers. Christ has saved you. He's called you out of that life of foolishness. And he's planted you into his life of righteousness, of wisdom and glory and marvelous light, the Bible says. And yet we're still choosing to live in this life of foolishness, which is basically equivalent to a fish trying to live out of water. It's not going to work well, is it? We're going against our new nature, and just as a fish out of water will suffer, out of the water believers will suffer when we're not behaving ourselves wisely. When verse 15 says, see then, it's actually calling our attention back to how we as believers have been raised from the dead and are now living in the light and in the life of Christ. See to it that you're living the right way, he's saying. See to it that what you say, the places that you go, how you act, is all done in conjunction with your new life in Christ, whether you've been saved five minutes or 50 years. There's a certain way that the children of God need to walk and should behave. And it is not in foolishness. What kind of testimony are we to the world if we look and act and talk just like everyone else? The message in verse 15 is simple. Basically what he's saying is, live like you are. As a child of God, you're not a fool. So live like it, he's saying. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, because you're not 
Walk as wise children of God is what he's saying. As a believer, at the very moment of your salvation, God has made you wise to understand him and to understand his truth. With that knowledge comes great responsibility, though. As a believer in Christ, there is a certain expectation and a standard that God expects you to live up to. And before you think that God is some cosmic killjoy who never wants you to have any sort of fun here on earth at all, you can just calm down for a moment. If and when God tells you not to do something, or if the Bible says that you shouldn't be doing something, it is because he knows that it is not going to benefit you and quite possibly may end up even hurting you. If God shows you areas of your life that are in need of being changed, habits that need to be abandoned, even relationships that need to end, lifestyles that need altering, he's showing you all of this for your own good because he knows these things are going to be detrimental to you behaving wisely as you should as a child of God. Despite what you might think, God doesn't want any of his children going through life miserable. He knows the longer you continue walking in foolishness, the more misery you're going to bring to yourself. So when God says no, he's wishing to spare you from future pain. If you were willing to trust in God for your eternal salvation, be willing to trust in him with how you're going to live your life from day to day. All he's saying is, since he's made you a new creation in him, the moment you believed on Jesus Christ, live according to that new nature. Don't be a fish out of water that is only going to be flopping its way through life, struggling in the entire time. Get in the water, he's saying. Get in the word and find out how God wants you to live and that you'll see that God's way is actually more natural and more conducive for your own future success. Look again at what it says in verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. Now circumspectly literally means perfectly or diligently. The idea is that we're living and we're behaving ourselves perfectly or diligently according to someone else. We're to carefully examine our lives to make sure that they're reflecting the one who has saved us. Go back to verse 14. It says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Christ is our example. He is the one that we're to pattern our lives after. So when it says, See then that you walk circumspectly. See then that you walk perfectly or diligently according to the one that has given you that light. The one that has brought you eternal life. He is the one that we are supposed to mirror when it comes to our lives. When you carry the name Christian, you're carrying the name of Christ everywhere that you go. Live up to it. Don't be a reproach to the name of Christ because you're not willing to behave wisely and are choosing to live foolishly for selfish reasons. Walk circumspectly. Make those changes in your life that you know need to be made. Cut out those habits you know that are more harmful than good. Do what needs to be done to make sure that both your public life and your private life are reflecting your Savior as clearly as possible. Think about what you're doing and be careful what you get involved with. At times, it seems as if 
we're walking through a spiritual minefield where Satan seeks to distract us, to destroy our testimony. Psalm 1, verse 1, it contrasts the way of the ungodly with the way of the righteous. And he says, says it this way. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The idea that's expressed there in that verse, just one verse, Psalm 1, verse 1, is that the righteous man, the man who's behaving wisely, is actually walking circumspectly in God's way. Walking diligently in God's way. I remember hiking as a kid once and coming to a stream that we had to cross and my mother telling me to step on a specific set of stones in order to cross the stream without slipping. Well, I thought I was smart enough to figure out my own path across the stream on my own. So as I began to cross the stream, I thought it'd be fun to step on a nice shiny rock. Well, my plans of crossing that stream and remaining dry were completely ruined. There's a reason it was shiny, and it's not because it was dry. When we're not walking circumspectly in God's way, we can easily get distracted by those things which look nice, but will end up causing more harm rather than actually doing us good. And notice third, the believer's limited privileges. The believer's limited privileges. Look at verse number 16. It says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. How many of you have ever started something without finishing it? <coughs> Who hasn't, right? How are those New Year's resolutions going? <laughs> what resolution? I've already forgotten it. The life of a believer can seem to be a series of unfinished projects. Those who are truly productive have mastered the use of the hours and the days in their lives. Time management is something I believe we can all benefit from. There always seems to be something that needs to get done and not enough time in the day to get everything done. Some of us have become masters at wasting time. We waste so much time watching television you all admitted that you waste time looking at your phones. Uh, we waste time even eating, sleeping. Whew. A lot of us waste time sleeping. Acting as if we have all the time in the world to take care of what needs to be taken care of. The truth is that God has not told us how much time we all have. Some of you may live to be 100, while some of you may not even see 60. The plea here in verse number 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil, is to maximize the time that we have, not the time that we think we're going to have. And the way we maximize that time is by behaving wisely, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but today. Because tomorrow, next week, and next year aren't guaranteed. Maximize the time today. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Outside of, of purposely disobeying God's word, the most frivolous thing that a believer can do is to waste time and to waste opportunities in half-hearted service for the Lord. 
Take full advantage of the opportunities that God gives you to serve him and to share him. Maybe this is a VBS plug. Take an opportunity. Sign up. If you want to leave right now in the middle of service, then go sign up. I'll actually let you do that. Take advantage of opportunities to serve the Lord. Take advantage of opportunities to to get involved in in volunteering with the church and ministering to people that God has placed in your lives. But redeem the time. Because we're not sure, we're not guaranteed how much time we're going to have. One of my favorite verses, a verse that that I'd like to be true of me at the end of my life, whenever that comes, is Acts 20.24. The Apostle Paul is offering his farewell remarks to the Ephesian elders. And as he spoke about all the trials that he had endured, he said this, Acts 20, 24. He said, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul served the Lord to the end. And he was able to say in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Redeem the time. You don't know how much time God has given you. You don't know when you're going to have the opportunity to do something different, but take advantage of the time that God has given you today and start behaving wisely. A man by the name of Kifa Simpangi was a national pastor in Africa who barely escaped with his family from brutal oppression and terror in their home country of Uganda. They made their way to Philadelphia where a group of believers was able to care for them and meet their needs. And one day his wife said to him, she said, tomorrow I'm going to go and buy some clothes for our children. And immediately the two of them broke out in tears. Due to the constant threat of death under which they had lived for so long, that was the first time in years they had dared to even speak the word tomorrow. Their terrifying experience forced them to realize what is really true for every single one of us. There is no promise of tomorrow. Their experience also shows us that the days indeed are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Make the most of your opportunities today, not just because our time is not guaranteed, but also because the world around us is continually growing worse. And fourth, this is my last one, the Lord's purposes. I want you to notice the Lord's purposes in all of this. Look at verse number 17 here in Ephesians chapter 5. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. In light of our urgency, the importance of believers behaving wisely is just reinforced here. You don't have to look far to see that there is a great need for the gospel to go forth around us. We mentioned this on Wednesday, that Albany and the capital region continue to top charts as the nation's most unchurched regions. The nation's most unchurched region. You're living in it. Year after year, Albany is one, two, or three as the most unchurched city across this entire country. 
That says a lot about believers in this area. If year after year, those numbers don't change and we're continuing to top those charts, do we recognize the urgency? Are we truly redeeming the time? Are we behaving ourselves wisely? Are we understanding what the will of the Lord is for us? The Lord's will is not for you to figure out how many different areas you can get involved in at church. You should be involved in church. But that's not what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is for you to be a beacon of light where he leads you. So if it's getting involved in church, it is to be a beacon of light where he's led you to be. It's not to see how many, how many groups you can be a part of, how many programs you can be volunteering at. I'm always going to encourage people to get involved in church and to volunteer in, in any and every capacity that you can, but don't think that church involvement at all takes the place of actually what our mission as believers and as a church should be, which is to reach the lost for Christ. You can be involved in every area of this church, but if you're not doing a thing to actually be a testimony and a witness to the world outside of us, what are you really doing? By all means, get involved. Volunteer, serve with all the gifts and the talents that God has gifted you with, but don't just sit back and rest on your church involvement and chalk that up as if you've served God faithfully. I honestly believe that the work of most churches in reaching the lost would increase exponentially if we spent just as much time and effort on evangelism and soul winning as we do with everything else. If you're struggling to understand what the Lord's will is for you, know that it starts with you, first of all, believing on Him as your Savior. God's will is for you to be saved, and then His will for you is to live the Spirit-filled life, to behave yourself wisely, to walk circumspectly, to be not unwise. This is God's will for you. It is to be submissive to His Word, to be submissive to God's leaders. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, the Bible states, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know what that says? That says that my responsibility as the pastor here at Latham Bible Baptist Church is to encourage you so much as to want to go out and be a minister for Christ. I'm accountable for everything that you all do here. So that means that I have to be above reproach in everything. That means that I have to be so very careful about what I say in private and what I say in public. It means I have to be extremely careful as to what I'm doing so that nothing could even appear, appear as an impropriety or in any sort of way negative. God's will may at times include suffering, though. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Some people think that they should never have to suffer if they're in the will of God. That a sign of suffering is in fact a sign that they're not in the will of God, but this tells us the other, otherwise. That sometimes God will lead, lead you through a season of suffering, but that purpose will always be to strengthen you. And it's better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. God's will ultimately leads us to giving him thanks, though. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Bible says, In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When we are who God wants us to be, he is in control and our personal will is merged with God's will. And he gives us the new desires of our hearts. Our example to follow as we seek to behave wisely is Christ. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, 
It says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now that right there should be the goal of every single believer, to live according to the will of God, to live according to please God and not our own personal flesh. Walking circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. As we've been saved by the grace of God, we should seek to live every day in the will of God, behaving ourselves wisely. David summed it up this way. In Psalm 101, verses 1 and 2, he said, I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. May that be what we desire. May that be what we're known for as believers, behaving ourselves wisely. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that this is only going to be possible through your help. Lord, we know that we need to submit ourselves to you. We know, Lord, that we need to leave the desires of our flesh behind. Lord, and substitute them with your desires, the desires that you have planted within us as new believers, Lord. Regardless of how long we've been saved, Lord, this is something that we all struggle with. That old man is, is seeking, Lord, to pull us back into some of those old habits which profited us nothing. Lord, may we look at all of that and see then that we must walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are indeed evil. Lord, help us to have that urgency. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to step out in faith and to do what you've called us to do, even if it involves making some serious lifestyle changes and altering some things that have been needing to be changed for quite some time. Regardless of what it is, Lord, may we do what's necessary with your help to behave wisely in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.